0: This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. New Yorkers are known to disagree about a lot of things. Who's got the best pizza? What's the fastest subway route? Yankees or Mets? But I would bet that if you polled every New Yorker, all 8,500,000 of them, they would agree on one thing.
1: Penn Station sucks.
0: That's Ann Hepperman, our friend and reporter in New York who also hates Penn Station.
1: There is nothing joyful about Penn Station. It's windowless, airless, crowded. 650,000 people have to suffer through it on their daily commute. That's more traffic than the region's three airports combined. Luckily though, I'm not one of them.
0: We're in Penn Station now. We tagged along with our unlucky friend, Jonathan Minhevar. He's a producer for This American Life and commutes from his home in Jersey to Penn Station.
1: His experience of Penn Station is like being at a Black Friday sale at Walmart. Every day. Always.
0: Like the whole time people are pushing you. Squeezing through a tiny stairway to get down to the tracks. It's the only place in which people are like actually touching your ass. And you're not supposed to say anything about it.
1: The air is often hot and stuffy.
0: It feels like whatever Wizard of Oz is behind, like that they are just watching in their little tower and watching like Oh, look at them crush each other, look at them want to eat each other. It's it's awful, it's awful. And it's my best way to get home every day.
1: Poor guy. And you can also see some Penn Station hate in popular culture about New York. Like in this episode of Broad City, where one character, Abby, gets dumped because her boyfriend would rather end a relationship than take a train out of Penn Station.
0: Penn Station, I can't, it's disgusting. It's kind of a deal-breaker for
1: me. But here's the worst thing about Penn Station. This drab, low-ceilinged, uninspiring, unexceptional building was once
2: the opposite of all of those things. It was a vast space. I mean, the building itself was the fourth largest building in the world when it was finished.
1: That's Jill Jones describing the original Penn Station. She wrote a great book about it called Conquering Gotham.
0: The original Penn Station in New York City opened in 1910. It was majestic. Imagine the Parthenon, but for trains. The facade was a line of massive Doric columns. You'd walk through them, descend down a grand staircase, and into a waiting room designed to remind you of a Roman temple.
2: With these very high ceilings and very spectacular light coming through, and that ushered you into all of these staircases that took you down into the train tracks. And the guy behind all of this was Alexander Cassatt, the head of Pennsylvania Railroad.
1: With the original Penn Station, Cassatt was fixing a problem that had plagued New York for years.
0: Namely, it was a complete pain in the ass to get from New Jersey to Manhattan. People commuting from Jersey had to schlep across the Hudson River on a slow ferry.
1: So Cassatt built the first ever train tunnel to run under the Hudson River. It was considered one of the greatest engineering feats ever.
0: I know we say that all the time, but we really mean it this time.
1: And Cassatt built Penn Station Terminal to crown his monumental achievement. The architecture celebrated both the past and the future.
2: It was a combination of this very ancient grandeur and this extremely industrialized uh, form of transportation, these really powerful trains. Newspapers called Penn Station the eighth wonder of the world.
0: People call a lot of things the eighth wonder of the world, but we really mean it this time.
1: Everyone loved it. Everyone, that is,
2: except for one other railroad family that owned a little station right across town. This then made the existing Grand Central Station, which was owned by the Vanderbilt family, look really shabby.
1: At the time when the original Penn Station was built... Grand Central Station was not anywhere near as grand as it is now. But the Vanderbilts just couldn't be outdone by this other train station.
0: Clearly. How embarrassing.
1: So when Grand Central needed a little touch-up, the Vanderbilts decided to tear it down and build a newer, shinier, grander
2: Grand Central Station.
1: The one we know today.
2: So there was this very early connection between the two. So Penn Station and Grand Central
1: started out as enemies. But as the years passed, they were like the last two drunks at the party trying to keep the night from coming to an end.
2: The country was in a very different sort of mindset that knew was good and flying was good and cars were good and trains were bad.
0: Penn Station was only 40 years old at this point, but already its days were numbered. After World War II, passenger trains just weren't as popular anymore.
1: Pennsylvania Railroad was just bleeding money. The company couldn't afford the
2: upkeep of Penn Station's grandeur. Everything that had been glorious about it really got sort of covered with grime, and it was dirty, and they didn't fix the broken windows, and there are all these pigeons flying around.
0: It's really hard to wash pigeon poop off a four-story arch glass ceiling.
2: So people did not feel that this was this glorious place. They felt it was really crummy.
0: For a lot of people, Penn Station had become a money-sucking albatross of a station.
1: That also sat on nine acres of precious midtown Manhattan real estate.
0: Remember, this is New York City. Real estate in New York is in the airspace. Pennsylvania Railroad executives knew that they could make tons of money if they could rent out the space above the station to a big, tall building.
1: There were proposals to build a parking garage, amphitheaters, a 40-story office tower... But the one that won out was the futuristic sports and entertainment palace known as Madison Square Garden.
0: The deal that Pennsylvania Railroad cut with the developer, Irving Feltz, was to keep the tracks below Penn Station and sell the rights to the airspace on top.
1: And blow up Penn Station in the process.
0: Here's where I wish we could say that the whole city banded together to save the station. But actually, no one really cared, except for a small group of activist architects. Agony. The Action Group for Better Architecture in New York. AGBANY. It's a terrible acronym, but definitely a cause I can support.
1: Peter Sampton was one of those architects. I went over to his house on the Upper West Side, and we looked through old photographs from the only march to save Penn Station. Excuse me.
3: Uh, I think this was my sign right here that said, Don't sell our city short.
1: The date was August 2nd, 1962. There were 200 rowdy architects.
3: Uh, we would have to wear uh, respectable clothing because otherwise they wouldn't take us seriously.
0: Just kidding about the rowdy part. These were architects. The men wore suits. The women wore white gloves and pearls. We each sort of prided ourselves on, on doing better lettering than the next sign. They marched up and down
3: 7th Avenue shouting, polish, don't demolish, save our heritage. Things like that is what we would say. I mean, keep in mind, we, none of us were ever on a
1: picket line before. You don't say. Still, the protest made the front page of the New York Times.
0: Architects fight Penn Station plan.
1: But it was too late. On October 28th, 1963, at 9 a.m., jackhammers tore into Penn Station's granite slabs.
0: The demolition took a long time, about three years. You know,
3: it, it was like a great animal because uh, you saw the black of the outside And then you saw the inside, which was all this beautiful pink. So it was like the flesh was opened up uh, with a knife.
1: And after three years, most of the original Penn Station's remains, the dork columns, the granite and travertine details, all of that had been dumped into a New Jersey swamp.
0: And of course, they gave us a new Penn Station, one that was summarily hated by everyone. In 1968, architectural historian Vincent Scully famously remarked that whereas before one entered the city like a god, one scuttles in now like a rat. After the destruction of Penn Station, Mayor Robert Wagner created the first Landmarks Preservation Commission. And in
1: 1965, the group helped pass the city's first ever Landmarks Law so that something as drastic as the destruction of Penn Station could never happen again.
0: But the landmark laws were flawed. It was a joke. New Yorkers are so blunt.
1: That's Roberta Gratz. She wrote award-winning stories about the problems with the city's landmark laws for the New York Post in the 1970s. For those of you who are too young to know, that the New York Post used to be a really good newspaper. There were a number of problems with the landmark laws. The biggest one, though, was that the landmarks commission didn't meet all that much. They met for six months. Every three years.
0: So if you missed your window to get your favorite New York City building landmarked, tough luck.
1: And in the meantime, the bulldozer operated at will.
0: Gratt says a lot of buildings were lost even after the landmark laws were passed. Like the Singer Building, which was once the tallest building in the world, and the old Metropolitan Opera House, and the Astor Hotel.
1: And then in 1968, Penn Station's old rival Grand Central Station was poised to be yet another pile of rubble. Here,
3: in the cathedral-like spaces of the terminal itself, robbing heart of a nation's metropolis,
1: we have arrived. I love Grand Central Station. Hands down, it is my favorite place in the city.
3: Welcome to Grand Central Terminal.
1: (laughs) Kent Barwick is just as excited as I am to be here. He's been involved in saving New York City's historic buildings for decades. We're standing under Grand Central's beautiful vaulted green ceiling, which is decorated with constellations. I just love looking up at it.
0: You and every other person.
3: Let's
1: see if we can find anybody
3: doing it. It's rare to come in here without finding somebody, taking a picture, or, there's one right. She's just about to take a picture.
1: (laughs) Grand Central feels like a throwback to what I feel like the old Penn Station must have been like.
0: Just like the original Penn Station. Grand Central was a hard building to keep clean.
1: Kent Barwick points to a small patch of black in the far corner of the ceiling. Just to the left of there, there
3: seems to be a piece of dirty limestone and a piece of dirty ceiling. I think that's that shows what the ceiling was like, which was essentially
1: nicotine coated.
2: Oh, and that's what it was? Oh, it was from
1: the, everybody smoked all the time. Yeah. That black ceiling square was left on purpose to remind people what Grand Central was like back in the day.
0: In the 1960s, Grand Central's history was almost a carbon copy of Penn Station's. They were losing money because the building was so expensive to maintain, and fewer people were taking trains.
1: Just like Penn Station.
0: Railroad executives decided they needed to sell the airspace on top of the station and invite developers to build.
1: Saying, hey. Wouldn't a 55-story office tower be nice on top of this baby?
0: Which would demolish Grand Central's facade and most of its interior.
1: But here's where the story of Grand Central and Penn Station diverge. Remember those landmark laws that happened in the years after the original Penn Station was demolished? Well, as weak as they were, they did manage to get Grand Central designated as a landmark so the city denies the railroad executives' plans.
0: The owners of Grand Central were not pleased. They wanted the money they were going to get from selling their air rights, the space above Grand Central, so they sued the city.
1: The case was a long one. It went on for nearly a decade.
0: And it was a bit of a nail-biter. Grand Central nearly lost in 1975 when a state judge ruled against the city's designation of it as a landmark. The new mayor, Abe Beam, almost didn't appeal the ruling, saying that the city was poised to lose millions in court costs.
1: So Kent Barwick and others created the Committee to Save Grand Central.
0: With one member who was a bit of a game-changer.
2: I think if there is a great effort, Even if it's at the 11th hour, you can succeed, and I think, and I know that that's what we'll do.
0: Enter Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis.
1: Thank you. Kennedy Onassis fronted a Save Grand Central press conference held in 1975 by the Municipal Arts Society.
0: Kent Barwick was at that press conference. He says that with Jackie O so prominently involved, the fight went from a New York battle to a national one.
3: And people began to write in, you
1: know, from
3: Iowa, a five-dollar bill enclosed.
1: The case went all the way to the Supreme Court, and on June 26, 1978, the highest court in the land ruled in favor of New York City's landmark laws.
0: Justice William Brennan wrote of Grand Central's architecture, quote, Such examples are not so plentiful in New York City that we can afford to lose any of the few we have, and we must preserve them in a meaningful way, End quote. In other words, Grand Central would not suffer the same fate as its old friend and foe, Penn Station.
1: So the landmark laws, with a lot of help from Jackie Onassis, squeaked out a win. And all of these years later, one of the ways people comfort themselves about the loss of the original Penn Station is with this idea that the laws that came out of the destruction of Penn Station saved Grand Central. So you know it's okay, because it died for a cause.
3: I don't think Grand Central would have been saved without Penn Station. Penn Station
0: sacrificed itself so that Grand Central could live. That was Peter Sampton. You heard from him earlier. He was one of the architects that fought and failed to save Penn Station.
1: But the tie between the destruction of Penn Station and the saving of Grand Central is actually kind of tenuous. For Roberta Gratz, it was Jackie O, not the landmark laws that saved Grand Central.
3: It's all very romantic to assume that the demolition of something so historic as Penn Station would have precipitated a strong landmarks law. It just isn't true.
0: A sacrificial lamb like Penn Station can only do so much. People have to actually fight and win, like they did with Grand Central, for laws to have teeth.
1: Roberta Gratz was actually one of those people. The reporting she did on the landmarks commission is just one of the things that led to the landmark laws ultimately being strengthened. And of course, the Supreme Court upholding those laws in the Grand Central case set an important precedent for saving future landmarks.
0: These days, it's still a fight to save a building. But the laws are there, and they're stronger now than they once were. So if you're a beautiful old building in New York, you don't have to rely on a celebrity endorsement or a ragtag group of architect activists chanting, Polish, don't demolish. To save you. Any items left will
1: be removed by and subject to search by the MTA police. Thank you for your
0: cooperation. 99% Invisible was produced this week by Anne Hepperman. Thanks to the WNYC archives and Julia Barton for her help in editing. 99% Invisible is Sam Greenspan, Katie Mingle, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 local public radio KALW in San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, an architecture and interiors firm in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Try it yourself. Go to squarespace.com invisible for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the offer code invisible to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. You can find the show and hang out with other people who like the show on Facebook. All of us are fascinating on Twitter to search for 99% Invisible, and you can find us and follow us. We have a great Tumblr, but you're always welcome at our place at 99pi.org. Radiotopia.